Well, as we've been going through the book of James together, one of the things that has come up a couple times as we've gone through, and initially in the beginning when we were introducing this great book of the Bible, was the fact that James, who has written this book of the Bible, is James the half-brother of Jesus. Of course, uh, Mary was a virgin, right, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, and Christ was born, but she was not a perpetual virgin, um, as some have uh, professed, but she had children with Joseph, one of which was James. And so James, you can imagine, had this front row seat to the life of Christ. You remember at one point that James and his other siblings actually didn't even believe in Jesus. John chapter 7 and verse 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. So James had this front row seat to Jesus' life, yet early on and probably into adulthood, he didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God, begotten of His Father before our worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, as the creed would later go on to say. He didn't believe any of that. But I still have to imagine that although James did not believe in Jesus, as, as you and I would profess and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten of God, and so forth, James certainly must have seen something in Jesus' life as he was growing that was special, right? The the Bible doesn't tell us too much about Jesus' upbringing and what was noticeable about his life, but it does clue us in as to this one specific thing about Jesus that is pertinent to this morning's passage, and it's found in Luke chapter 2 twice. Luke, Luke says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then it goes on to say in Luke 2.52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So even as a young child, Jesus Christ was filled with wisdom, Luke says. But it also says that Jesus grew in wisdom. He increased in wisdom. And James would have had, again, this front seat to Jesus' life and watching Jesus increase in wisdom. And it would have been absolutely undeniable. The cliche that we often use would have easily fit with Jesus. He was wise beyond his years, right? But as we approach our text, I wonder this. Is this something that could be said of you? Are you filled with wisdom? Are you increasing in wisdom? It might be easy for you to say, well, well, that was Jesus. Right? I mean, this, is, this is God in human form, 100% man, 100% God. Of course, he's going to be filled with wisdom and he's going to grow in this wisdom, right? But can this be, is this true of you? Are you filled with wisdom? Are you growing in wisdom? Or can I ask the question that James begins this passage with, in James chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? It's like asking if somebody is humble. I mean, who is going to answer yes if you ask them if they're humble, right? Nobody's going to answer yes to that. But if I were to ask you personally, are you wise? Most of you would probably say No, because you wouldn't want to make it sound like you're a know-it-all or that you have all wisdom. But maybe you know the scripture from Proverbs that says, be not wise in your own eyes, right? But thankfully for us, this question is rhetorical and it's made to make us stop and think. Who is wise 
and understanding among us. Like within the context of our church family, who, who is wise within the context of our church family? Who has understanding? And this theme of wisdom is something that James has hit on before, and I think that we do need to jump back to chapter 1. So why don't you turn back to chapter 1 really quickly to see what he has said, to give us a little bit of a refresher, because I think it will help us grab on to this passage a little bit better. James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, go back to James 3. So remember that this passage, James 1, and the entire book of James is written within the context of trials. You're to ask God for wisdom in the context of trials in your life. So James says that if we're lacking wisdom while within the trial, we ask God and He's going to give it to us without reproach. So we've already, to some extent, discussed where the wisdom that we need within our lives, within the trials, comes from, and it comes directly from God. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, Don't be like a wave that is tossed around, right? With worldly philosophies or anything like that. Don't be double-minded. Don't be unstable. Get wisdom from God. But James is going to elaborate on that. So what he's kind of done is he's speckled a few things in the beginning of the book. And then he elaborates a little more here and there on this. And within verses 13 to 16, he elaborates on where we get our wisdom from and where we shouldn't get our wisdom from. And that is the wisdom of the world, And if you want to follow along with my outline this morning, it's on the back of your bulletin. And you'll notice how parallel this passage is by looking at the outline. You have the wisdom of the world, and you have the wisdom that comes from above. And for both of these different wisdoms, James is going to show us their source, their motivation, and their results. But look at verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So what is the wisdom of this earth? More specifically, let me ask, what is the wisdom of this earth in the eyes of God? Like As God is in all of His glory and beauty and holiness in heaven right now, He looks down to earth, He sees the wisdom of the world. What is that in the eyes of God? He's all-knowing. He hears and sees everything going on. What does He think? Is, he, is God impressed with the wisdom of the world? Does, does he learn a thing or two by what the world has to offer? Absolutely not. In fact, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words in 1 Corinthians, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. If you understand something about wisdom from the Old Testament, you know that what is often pitted against wisdom is folly, right? Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. And to God, the wisdom of this world is nothing but utter foolishness. 
We, we so often stand impressed by the world, don't we? We, ha- we have to admit, that, concede that there are times where we just are enamored by what is coming out of the world and the information that the world has to offer us. But those who follow after the wisdom of the world, they are fools. And those fools who follow after this wisdom of the world are really displaying who it is that they follow, as Paul again says, following the prince of the power of the air. Because, according to James, the wisdom from this world is partly sourced in hell. Look, look at verse 15 again. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What we need to realize is that the wisdom from the world is not simply man-made ideas. It's not this man-made, no-big-deal, benign wisdom. It's sourced in demonism. It's not just natural as to us. It's, it's supernatural, but going the other way. It is powerful. It is demonic. The wisdom of the world is displayed in many ways. Like you can think of all of the isms, right? That you maybe had learned about in in history or maybe you took philosophy classes or whatever. All of the isms throughout church history, like humanism, like a human-centered perspective of all things and materialism, all all that matters and exists is material or secularism or atheism or agnosticism or existentialism, postmodernism, nihilism. Like all of these isms are wisdom from the world. Those, those isms are not from God. Nihilism, that like nothing ultimately matters, is not from God. These are the wisdoms of the world. And we are constantly, whether we realize it or not, being inundated by these things, aren't we? To where we don't even realize it. To where when we wake up in the morning, we don't throw on the armor of God and and put that shield out to block ourselves from the wisdom of the world. Instead of shielding ourselves from it and running to God for wisdom, we imbibe it. And as the Kool-Aid goes down, it kills us. The danger of worldly wisdom entering into us is always there. It is always lurking at the door. And that's because we live in the world, right? And so we read books by people that have a few letters after their name. And if it's from the world, it's expressed in these sort of things, these sort of isms. But being members of the world, and we haven't been taken out of the world until we are, or until this world is made new, there is always the danger that we could fall prey to the crafty, worldly, demonic wisdom of our day. The source of the world's wisdom is hell. It is demonic. But notice next the motivation of worldly ambition. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast And be false to the truth. So jealousy and selfish ambition. Notice how James describes ambition. It's it's selfish ambition. So there's a difference between being an ambitious business owner. Where you treat your employees well. And you treat your customers well. And you keep your family life in check. You keep your church life in check. All of that. But then there's the other side of being selfishly ambitious as a business owner. 
where you don't treat your employees and your customers well. You don't treat your family well. They, your family, your church, everything comes second to business, where you overcharge or you cook the books or whatever it is. Selfish ambition should be absent of the life of the Christian in part so that it can be absent from the context of the whole church, right? So it doesn't begin filling the church body. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Selfish ambition has the attitude of my way or the highway, right? The the wisdom of the world is motivated by this selfish ambition. Can't you feel it? Like when you watch TV, when you jump on social media, when you see what's going on in the world, can't you see its motivation is selfishness, it's ambition, it's motivated by evil sourced in hell, right? This kind of wisdom sourced from hell and motivated by selfish ambition refuses the wisdom from above and focuses solely on things of this world. So the selfish ambition, like the word implies, has this selfish focus. A meek individual has a Godward focus. He wants God's word implanted, received, and growing in his or her life. But for some of us, this is exactly how we live. We can never get God's wisdom because we're so selfishly ambitious for what we can gain from the world. We're motivated out of self-interest and it absolutely destroys us. What are the results of wisdom that are sourced in hell and motivated by selfish ambition though? What what are the results? So if you're going to live this way, if you're going to be driven by selfish ambition and jealousy, what's the results in, in your life? Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. One author said it this way, This hell-derived wisdom leaves in its wake chaos, brokenness, factions, death, and destruction. Think about it this way. The problem with a jealous person and personal ambition is that, or selfishly personal ambition, is that it is the very antithesis of what Jesus has called every Christian believer, disciple to do, and that is to deny himself. Not to fulfill your selfish ambitions, but to deny yourself. Jesus says, it's recorded all over the Gospels, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me, right? In pursuing Christ, who is himself wisdom, is impossible if you are filled with selfish ambition. Because he calls you as a believer, as a disciple, to deny yourself, not to satisfy yourself. James, per usual, he's pulling no punches. If you imbibe the wisdom of the world, you put it into practice into your life, you're motivated by selfishness or or selfish ambition and jealousy, the only result that is possible in your life is disorder and wicked practices. So the result of selfish ambition, pursued long enough, can be a destroyed marriage. The result of selfish ambition and jealousy, taken long enough, is a destroyed church. It's destroyed relationships. But how many of us have placed our selfish ambitions at the center of our lives? You're pursuing that job so hard, you're feeling gratified in it, and your family is lost? Is that worth the trade? And this can be so tricky, and I'll totally confess that being here for the last four years, there's certainly been things 
many things that I have done that were godly out of selfish ambition. And it's tricky because you can convince yourself, I'm doing this for God, right? But you're actually doing it to make yourself look good or whatever the case is. Do you realize how many pastors lose their families because of how ambitious they are in the context of the church? You hear of it all the time. You, you hear this phrase a lot. As a warning to young pastors, don't sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. And again, it is tricky because you convince yourself, I'm doing this for God. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be pouring out hour after hour for the sake of the church. I'm supposed to drop everything on a scheduled day off or, 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 or a vacation or whatever it is. I'll drop that with, or plans with the family because there's something happening over here at the church and I feel like I need to, to be there, right? And before you blink, you and your wife are distant. You have no relationship with your kids. Why? Because of selfish ambition leading to putting your family on the back burner. And again, in confession, I have fallen so many times for the wisdom of the world as a pastor and have applied their wisdom to my life and I've been motivated by selfish ambition and at times has led to the neglect of my family. So concerned because of my ambition that this church is a reflection of Brandon instead of the church working toward your growth so that you would reflect God, which is the goal. Friends, I would ask you, as I have had to even this week, to search your own souls, to find that worldly wisdom. Where do you apply your selfish ambitions? And it could be with your kids, with your spouse, with your job, with your ministry, whatever it is, I would ask you, implore you, ask God to root it out. And then within its place, seek the wisdom that is from God and God alone, the wisdom that is from above. And I want you to notice this wisdom now, okay? So this wisdom from God, look at verses 17 and 18, where he tells us where it's from, as he did back in James 1. He says, But the wisdom from, God, from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the earth, as it sits right now, is experiencing a famine of God-given wisdom. And it is ultimately because the earth does not fear God. The people of this world do not fear God. The world doesn't. And if you don't have a fear of God, you cannot have the wisdom from above, can you? The Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's where real... Wisdom begins for us. It begins with a genuine, reverent fear of a holy God. A God that is sovereign over all things. A God that is described as a consuming fire. He's holy. The God who created the mountains and the seas and the greatest animals on the planet. The one who did and does all of this work. He's worthy of reverent fear. And there isn't a lick of it on earth. And frankly, there's not much of it within our churches. Real wisdom from above begins with fearing the one who is above. Not the kind of fear where you're walking around outside and you feel like you're going to get zapped. But a reverence. A genuine honoring God for who He is 
and what he has done. We have to get back to basics, don't we? Getting back to who God is. Getting back to what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And having a reverent fear for all of it. Otherwise, we remain fools. Again, you remember chapter 1, James is writing to these people who are in a constant state of trial. And I think the understanding of these Christians would be is that they are reverencing God. They are uh, fearful of God in that sense. They haven't deserted the faith. They haven't turned away from him despite being under trial. And James tells them that they should ask for wisdom from God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask from God. And then James also says in chapter 1 that he describes where every good and perfect gift like wisdom comes from. And that is from above. Good and perfect gifts, they don't come from below. They don't come from earth. They come from above. And from whom do they come? They come from the Father of the heavenly lights, James says. And so this is the source of heavenly wisdom. It is above. It is God. But now notice its motivation. In contrast to the worldly wisdom that has the the motivation of the jealousy and the selfish ambition, the wisdom from above has the motivation of meekness. Look back at 13 again. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Again, notice here the emphasis on good works, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago with faith and works. It's like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, wisdom is justified by her deeds. But James says here, by our conduct, let us show our works. And then he shows what the works of wisdom are sourced in. They're sourced in meekness. Do you realize that the word meekness is only used about 10 times in the entire Bible, at least in the English translational Bible, type in the word meek. It's only mentioned about ten times. And that's partly due to the word humility being a close or humility being a close synonym with meekness. But what meekness that it carries this idea of controlled strength. To be a meek person is is not to be weak. You often hear meekness is not weakness, right? To be a meek person is actually to have strength, but it's a controlled strength. So it's not weakness, it's just this controlled strength. Maybe picture a a campfire, right? They're strong, but it's contained. It has great potential, but it's controlled. The Bible says in the book of Numbers that the leader of Israel, Moses, was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Ultimately, Jesus becomes the meekest man who ever lives. He describes himself as meek. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. I am gentle. This one, Jesus, as God, was the very power of God. He consistently lived as one with controlled strength. And so the motivation of the wise person is meekness. Like Christ And so you see the real wisdom when it is not being self-promoted. You see real wisdom when the person is not putting on airs, right? A wise person doesn't need to inform you that they are wise, right? He or she simply live their life and display wisdom that God has given to them, not from selfish ambition, but from a disposition of meekness. But finally, I want to show you the results of wisdom from above. What would your life even look like if you were implementing the wisdom from above? Look at verse 17 again. This wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable 
and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So biblical wisdom is sourced in God. In our lives, the seed of wisdom begins to grow when we genuinely fear God. But then as the wisdom from God is fleshed out in your life, it looks like a pure life. It looks like holiness. It looks like peace. It looks like a gentle disposition, open to reason, which is interesting, isn't it? Because when you think of a wise person, they have a lot to say and they have wisdom. But James says that wisdom actually looks like it's open to reason. That's a wise person. Or a merciful heart, a fruit, impartiality, and sincerity. These qualities are the outflow of wisdom working in a Christian's life. And so without wisdom, you don't get holiness. Without, inter- without uh, wisdom, you don't get peace. Without wisdom, you're not going to be open to reason. All through the list you go. And what James is doing here is nothing more than echoing his big brother Jesus, isn't he? When you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he goes through those Beatitudes and then you read verse 17 here that James says, it's interesting. James begins his list by saying that godly wisdom is pure. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. James says, godly wisdom is peaceable. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. James says, godly wisdom is gentle. Jesus says, blessed are the meek or the gentle. James says, godly wisdom is full of mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful Friends, the reason you may not have purity or peace or mercy in your life like we see here is quite simply because you are not wise. If your life is a madhouse, if everything's out of control all the time, never victory over sin, no consistency in your walk with Christ, constant family struggles, constant friction, you need wisdom. And if you need wisdom, I know the place you need to go. And that is to your knees, to ask God for wisdom, to ask him to stoke a reverent fear in your heart so that you can say, along with the one who wrote that proverb, chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, would you, would you stoke that fear? Reveal yourself to me through your word so that as I read it, I grow in my fear of you. Search the scriptures for the revealed wisdom that is available to every Christian. Or the Bible also says that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Grab your friends and your, your fellow church members who trust in Christ and who would seek His face on your behalf and gather together asking for wisdom. Friend, the wisdom that you need is not found in the world. The wisdom of the world is sourced in hell. It's motivated by selfish ambition and it results in disorder and vile practices. That is not what you need in your life. You need wisdom from God. You need wisdom motivated by God-given meekness so that your life bears the God-given fruit of the wisdom that comes from Him. Will you turn, as we close, to 1 Corinthians 1? Just right over to 1 Corinthians 1. Important passage in the context of this discussion of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1. I want to begin reading in verse 20. Ultimately, I want to show you who is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God made foolish the wisdom of the world, and the world could never and still can never come to God through their own wisdom, can they? Paul says, the Jews, like this, kind of these two sides, Jews over here, they demand a sign. And the Greeks, they seek wisdom, which as you know, if you know anything about the Greeks, that's certainly what they were seeking. But what do we do? So you have the Jews over here, you have the Gentiles over here, the non-Jews over here. But what do we do? We preach Christ. And to do something like preach Christ is going to be a stumbling block to some. If you have a problem with Jesus as revealed in God's word, it's a stumbling block to you, right? It's going to be foolishness to you. But Paul is clear that Jesus himself is the very power and wisdom of God. And so when Jesus was a boy, he was filled with wisdom. He grew in wisdom as a human. Yet Jesus is the very wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, does the world think you're a fool for following after Jesus? That's good. Because that's what it takes. If you are foolish in the eyes of the world because you have believed and trusted in the wisdom of God, that is good. That is good. If you believe and trust in the wisdom of God and what comes to you through the wisdom, being Jesus, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, you have an eternal foothold that cannot be shaken. You'll have nothing to boast about in the eyes of the world, but you'll be able to boast in the Lord. So for those seeking wisdom, whether you are a believer or not, wisdom is ultimately going to be found in a person. It is found in Jesus. And so you want wisdom? Seek Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for clearly showing us that the wisdom of the world, where it comes from, what it's motivated by. Lord, what the results are of following after the world's wisdom. But then, 
the source and the motivation and the results of the wisdom that comes from God. And Lord, there might be those here this morning who do not know you. They do not fear you. They do not know Jesus. Lord, would you open their eyes to Christ this morning? And for those of us who do believe and have been believing, would we recognize that to pursue wisdom in our lives, it's going to mean pursuing Jesus. Reading his word, encountering him there. Lord, certainly recognize that, again, this book in the context of trials and the wisdom that we need, there are certainly people within our congregation now who are within trials and they desperately need wisdom. So I pray that you'll help them to pursue Christ who is the very wisdom and power of God. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, will you stand with me? We'll sing, Be Thou My Vision.